According to PBS, if you go back to the 1800s, you'll find that 90% of the population lived on farms. And some of you are like, man, I would be flourishing if only I was living in the 1800s. Not true. Your family, some of your family probably would have been dead for some kind of fever. Uh, but then the Industrial Revolution happened in the 19th century. And when the Industrial Revolution happened, uh, which was the transition of making goods by hand to making goods with machines, significant changes, in our, change in, cha- changes happened in our society. Uh, moved us away from the farms. And so now today, under 2% of our population uh, lives on a farm. So it went from 90% to under 2%, which means many things for us. Most of us, including myself, don't have much experience with the farm life. Our best education uh, of learning about a farm would be through being educated through movies like Babe or Charlotte's Web, uh, which teach us about talking animals, which isn't true and is problematic because some of us might believe that they actually talk and they don't. And so the Bible's filled with agricultural metaphors, some of which can just like shoot over our head. And the text that we're in in John 10 this morning is entirely about two agricultural metaphors that are pretty significant. I want to lean into them and find the value of them and allow the text to inform and shape who we are. There's two I am statements that Jesus is going to provide for us in John 10 this morning, both on a farm and both matter to us. And so we're in a series in the Gospel of John where we're doing a teaching series through the entire Gospel And we're in a section in John 6 through 11 where there's multiple statements that Jesus makes, uh, I am statements. And so we've been hovering over those statements that that John is trying to communicate about Jesus. And so we're going to be in in two this morning in John chapter 10. We're going to pick up uh, starting in verse 1. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was trying to say to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'd love to pray for us. Father, as we begin our time this morning, I do pray that you would inform us and shape us and transform us through these statements. I pray that we would feel relieved of the pressure to control our lives and we'd feel the presence of Jesus by his spirit in the way that he leads and forms and shapes us. Lord, let us be aware of your presence before us. In Jesus' name, I am. amen. Okay, so the first I am statement is, I am the door of the sheep. 
I am the door of the sheep. This word door is similar to, to uh, gate. It can be interchangeable. It is, it is the entryway into a pen. So again, we aren't aware of this, most of us at least. So you have this pen. It can be pretty significant in size, but a pen that the sheep will go into and where the shepherd has created uh, a places of flourishment for these sheep. And they had to go through this gate or through this door to enjoy all the benefits that the shepherd has provided for the sheep. And Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. See, for, for the sheep, they, they needed boundaries so they didn't run away. They needed boundaries to protect them from other potential animals. These animals are not the smartest. They have a tendency to, to need a shepherd to tend to them and to care for them. A shepherd was imperative for the flourishment of a sheep. Near Eastern shepherds would oftentimes sleep in the gateway of the pen to protect and care for the sheep. Again, he would become the protector. He would become the means by which the sheep would enter and exit the pen. So there's a fence, there's this entryway in, and to enjoy the pasture, to enjoy the brook, to enjoy the benefits of this area, you'd have to go through the gate to be able to experience the life of the shepherd. And Jesus explicitly says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the access point to enter into the life of the shepherd. You can't hop the fence. You can't break down the fence. That's not an option for us. Jesus says, there's one way to enter, and it's through me, through me as the gate. And then in verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He makes these two claims that I want us to consider and, and spend a few minutes marinating uh, on. The first is that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I want to consider that for a little bit. There are thieves and robbers, and he goes on and uses this phrase, hired hands, that would love for you to think that they care for you, and they don't. They would love to think that they, they would love for you to believe that they are guiding you, and they're not. They don't care. And Jesus Call, uh, reminds us to question their voice and question their influence in our lives. Thieves are people and things, both of which seek to steal, kill, and destroy. These thieves are designed and desire is to uh, steal from you, kill from you, and destroy your soul. Jesus is mentioning this to us. These thieves drive us and they master us and they make us think that if we had them, we have life. But in return, when we have them, we find ourselves hollow and suffocating. When they take on that shepherding role, they lead us to bad water. They lead us to uh, uh, pastures of no nourishment. They become ones who don't care for us. And Jesus reminds us to be aware of these voices and aware of these uh, things and people within our lives. David Foster Wallace was a writer and a novelist. He was an atheist. Um, and he gave a commencement address a few years before dying by suicide. And in it, he articulates the dynamics of this thief. 
If we seek after uh, things and worship them, we find that they'll end up ruining us. And he says this in this commencement speech. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, uh, be it Allah or Yahweh or a Wiccan mother goddess, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive if you worship money and things. If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty, your sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more and more power over others just to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, if that's what you live for, For being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is that they're unconscious, uh, that they're unconscious, they are default settings. So he puts his finger on the pulse of the human hearts and the thieves that steal and kill and destroy I don't know enough about David Foster Wallace to speculate exactly the relationship between what he said here and his death, and if there's some kind of link. But did you hear his premise? He said, these things will eat you alive. He's just changing the language of what Jesus said, that the thieves come to steal and kill and destroy. There's something that ate him alive. See, unless you have a God who can deliver on the hopes you put in these things, they will eat you alive. It will become a thief that will kill and destroy your own life. And atheists responded to this commencement speech and they, they hated it. There were, there were forums and things on Reddit that, that communicated how much they hated what he was saying because in their mind, worship was a place that you went to, a building where you sang songs. And what he was communicating is that worship isn't a place. It's a posture of the heart. We all worship something. He says the insidious thing is that these things are unconscious. Everyone builds their life upon something. Some of those things are thieves, and some of those things are Jesus. All these forms of worship are unconscious, yet they they bind us. They can become thieves to us. You can bet your life on them. You can put so much of your life and energy towards them, and even if you get them, you wake up and realize that they're not what they said they would be. So how do you spot a thief? If we all have them, if Jesus says the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, and ultimately he's referring to Satan and the world and our flesh and the way they can pull us, what does it look like to be aware of those things that are stealing from us, killing us, and destroying us? It'd be lazy to say, what are you living for? It's not enough to answer the question to spot the thief. A better question would be this. How do you spot the thief? 
you look at your worst nightmare. How do you spot the thief in your life? You look at the things that keep you up at night. What is your worst nightmare? If it were absent from you, if it was taken from you, it would remove your desire to live. What are those things? Maybe it's a relationship that you've put so much stock into that if you didn't have it, you had nothing. Maybe it's a status that you're pursuing in work, in your career, that if you got it, you had everything, not realizing that there is no end to that cycle. Maybe it's a level of security that you're seeking to attain or that you have. Maybe it's expectations that you have in life. And if things went sideways, you would lose everything. See, when we turn good things into ultimate things, they become thieves who steal and kill and destroy. In 2008, when the market plummeted, uh, we saw countless stories of worst nightmares coming true. High-profile leaders who knew they had lost so much, many of them, so, so much money, many of them died by suicide. Many stories, you can learn and read of them in the book that Tim Keller wrote called Counterfeit Gods. He's a whole section on this. And I heard a story of a woman, on the contrary, this wealthy, extremely wealthy woman in this time, building her career, ultimately hitting 2008. She was generous, she followed Jesus, and she lost, in 2008, she lost 90% of everything she owned in, in this short period of time. And she came to a pastor and, and, and began to kind of flesh out her processing of this. And she began to land that she is learning to rethink how to live. And in some ways, she was excited about what God would do in losing all of this and how she would need to respond. She had to move out of the house that she was in. She had to uh, remove uh, the, the memberships that she was a part of. But for her, this wasn't her everything. There's more to life than money. See, the thief will eat you alive. She just said the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to ask, what, what is that for us? And then on the contrary, Jesus says, but I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. On the contrary, what, uh, what these things can't provide, Jesus can, like truly can. Jesus is the one who can deliver on the hopes that you have, like your soul hopes. Maybe not the hopes in the house that you want, maybe not the hopes in the type of family you have, but the soul hopes of peace and the soul hopes of, of satisfaction deep within, those are the areas that he can satisfy. He may not give you what you want because he knows what you need is oftentimes not what you want. He will never eat you alive. Instead, he will give of himself and provide for you in ways that lead to life. And this abundant life is not just in the future, Heard somebody say once before that eternity, in some ways, as we begin to follow Jesus, begins today. See, Jesus offers you a way to submit to him now, to be guided by him now, to be nourished by him now. That's counter to what the world offers. It happens through surrender and submission, learning the ways of his heart. See, if anyone enters by me, Jesus says, he will be saved and go in and out 
to the pasture and experience the life of the pasture. See, sometimes abundance takes time to experience the flourishment that Jesus is offering. See, nothing about the kingdom of Jesus is quick. If you want to see abundance in your marriage, sometimes you have to go through years of counseling to experience the benefit of that, to see Jesus pull back areas of your life to experience the goodness that's there. If you want to experience abundance in your parenting, sometimes it takes time, and sometimes it takes two to tango, and sometimes you can put your soul into it, and if your child doesn't, maybe it won't, uh, you won't experience some of the expectations and hopes that you have. It can happen in all areas of life, but Jesus offers us a soul-level abundance. He says, I am, the good, I am the gate of the sheep. The thief comes to destroy, and I came to to bring life. We continue this agricultural theme. He isn't just the gate. He is the shepherd within the gate. We read that in John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. It says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Remember that word snatch. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Three times in these few verses, he says, not only that he is the shepherd. I don't know if you caught that he describes that shepherd as the good shepherd. Three times, I am the good shepherd. From Genesis to Revelation, we see this metaphor of God as shepherd. As early as Genesis and as late as Revelation and throughout the, the scripture, we read that culminating in Revelation seven seventeen, where it says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's the good shepherd are you acquainted with Jesus as the good shepherd? Another translation would be the good pastor. He is the good pastor. Friends, I, you might have heard me say this before. I'll say it again. I am not the senior pastor here. That is not my moniker. It never will be. There's few reasons for why that's the case, and that's not for now. But I will say that pastors rarely use as a noun or a title in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, we see the fivefold ministry that, uh, that within the church, there's apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And then 1 Peter 5, we, it speaks of the office of an elder, which we are elder-led. Uh, and he charges, Paul charges, I'm sorry, Peter here, this Peter, not Paul. Peter uh, references the value of the chief shepherd that we serve under his authority, that we all, experience Jesus as our shepherd. All through the Gospels, when we hear that Jesus is our shepherd, it's implied that he's also 
our pastor. I am the good shepherd. He is our chief pastor. Jesus is your pastor. What does it mean that Jesus is our shepherd? It means that he guides you. He guides your life. He directs your life. It means he guards you. He protects you. We'll be getting to Psalm 23 in just a minute, but in Psalm 23, it says his, his, his rod and his staff comfort us. The rod is more like a baseball bat where you just whip wolves that come your way. The, the staff is more gentle in the way that pulls the neck of a shepherd. He guards you. He protects you. And he knows you. The text is explicit here that he knows his sheep, that they know his voice, they know the intent of his heart, and they follow him. We'll pick it up in verse 27. I want to continue this theme of the idea of the good shepherd knowing you. In verse 27, it says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will, again that word, snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And he says, I and the Father are one. The security in these potent words that Jesus knows his own and that no one or no thing or no animal or no entity or no reality can snatch his sheep from his hands. I want us to feel this. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to get lost in theological debates, but I want us to feel the dynamic that Jesus says that we cannot be snatched from his hand. I want us to feel it that when he says, I know them, when he says, they will follow me, that I give them eternal life, that they will never perish. See, life will make you bleed, yes, but you will never be lost and you will never be ruined when Jesus is your shepherd. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweigh them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And life's going to hurt at times. It's going to be confusing. We're going to feel the pressing of it. But it will never destroy us. It will never lead us to being despaired. It will never crush us. Because we have a shepherd who cares and guides. We might get fleas. We might have a leg that breaks. But he holds us. And he cares for us. And he protects us. No one will snatch them out of my hands. He refers to his hands and his father's hand. And no one will snatch his sheep out of their hand. Not a wolf, not a thief, not a robber. So what is he trying to provide for us? If we were to listen to this for the first time, what is he saying to us? He's providing security. That you were held. You were guided. You were guarded. 
You are known by a shepherd who is leading your life. Someone is over your life, and we are under his care. He knows where we're heading, and he's out in front of it all. He doesn't just know you, but he's willing to lay down his life for you. He says that within the text, that he is the type of shepherd that doesn't show up just because he's getting paid, and when a wolf comes, he's like, I'm out. That's scary. But he leans in. He's a shepherd that leans in and is willing to give his life to protect his sheep. He goes on, we already read the text where he says that he willingly lays down his life. There ain't no wolf that can take his life, but he'll lay down his life for his sheep. He's the type of shepherd that gives his all for us. He's willing to risk his life for the sheep. Friends, Christ loves the church and he gave himself up for her. This is the good shepherd that we serve in this text. And we land with this profound picture there. The story goes on and there's tension that happens. Actually, they pick up stones to throw at him yet again for the third time in the Gospel of John. He's building towards a specific end in a moment. He actually uses this argument tactic called an ad hominem to stall the crowd by saying, you know, we're all gods. And so he doesn't say that to make us believe. Some have made the argument that he's now saying that we're all gods and he's not God. That's not his point at all. He's actually just stalling the crowd from from what they want to do so he can extend uh, the testimony of his word and work. That's just a sidebar. But we land with this profound picture of assurance, this picture of care that he will provide what nothing else can. He will provide what the thieves cannot. He offers us living water, and he's the bread of life. He is the good shepherd. The point, this points to the language in, in Psalm 23, and Charles Spurgeon says this about Psalm 23, verse one, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, we have all things in abound, not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not but because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. We have a shepherd who cares for us. So much of our baggage from our parents or our guardians prevent us from believing that he's able to care for us. So we spend a lot of our life, if we don't actually go through the kind of unworking of some of our experiences growing up, we can spend our entire life feeling the pressure to be in control of our life making sure it turns out in the way that we expected and living frustrated that it doesn't turn out the way we expected. And a part of our journey of following Jesus is learning to let go, to be reformed. That we might have been deformed, but learning to be reformed and ultimately transformed by Jesus as our good shepherd. I have to ask you, do you know, are you acquainted with Jesus as the good shepherd one of, uh, in Dallas, one of Dallas Willard's books, uh, uh, Life Without Want, he, uh, within it, or Life Without Lack, uh, within it, he uh, breaks down briefly Psalm 23 and gives brief commentary within it. I wanted to just end our time together just being reminded of what it means that God is our good shepherd. And so the way we're going to do this, I have a URL up here that you can get to later. I'm gonna, we're going to go through this together. It's pretty good stuff. And so some of you might want to feel like you need to write it down or, or take a picture of it or something. And I don't want you to do that. I want you just to receive. And we're going to send this out in the email this week or you can look it up later. It's going to be on the website so you can look at it later. But I want to just take a minute where we can close our eyes if that's what you want to do or just 
kind of put your body in a posture of just receiving. And I want to just read through this little excerpt of Dallas Willard when he breaks down Psalm 23 and allow our hearts to remember that we are sheep and he's our good shepherd. I'll read it to you. You can follow along or you can close your eyes, whatever you feel comfortable with. It says this, the Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. I've taken my kingdom and surrendered it to the kingdom of God. I'm living the with God life. The Lord is my shepherd. What follows from that? I shall not want. That's the natural result. I shall not lack anything. That's what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What kind of sheep lies down in green pasture? A sheep that has eaten its fill. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. He leads me beside the still waters. The sheep that is being led beside still water is a sheep that is not thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He restores my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated in a life in union with God, the eternal kind of life. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The effect of the restoration of my soul is that I walk in paths of righteousness on his behalf as a natural expression of my renewed inner nature. As I walk these paths, my trust in the shepherd runs so deep that I can declare, yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A life without lack is one that carries no fear of evil. Our confidence, our confidence in God soars far above wants and fears. Would you like to have a life without fear? A life soaring of faith? It seems like Jesus was constantly saying this to his friends. Fear not. Fear not. Imagine what that would be like. No fear of life, aging or death, disease or hunger. No fear of any person or creature not even the loss of your possessions. You can live without fear, even in the midst of a world dominated by fear. For you are with me. The essential truth of this te text is the complete sufficiency of the life without lack. And it's based upon the presence of God. And he's most clearly and fully present to us in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Lastly, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know from experience that the rod and staff represent the shepherd's strength and protective care. In this safe place where I have no fear, I'm at liberty to enjoy the overwhelming generosity of my shepherd. Friends, we're invited to posture our hearts like sheep as we consider Jesus the gate and Jesus the good shepherd. So I have to ask as we close, what, what are the thieves in your life? 
that you're putting hope in that will not give you the return that they promise that they will? What are those things? And we're invited to surrender them. We're invited to let go. We're invited to trust again. And secondly, where is Jesus inviting you to trust his shepherding leadership? In your life, where is he inviting you to trust his shepherding leadership that he cares and he guides and he guards and he leads? Friends, we are under the care and watchful eye of another. Jesus is a good shepherd and he invites us to know him towards that end. Amen? Let's pray. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Lord, we thank you that you guide. We thank you that you guard, that you lead, that you hold the keys of death and Hades. Nothing, no one, no thing can snatch us from your hand. We thank you for the security and the mystery and the beauty of your pursuit and care. So this morning, I pray that we would feel your strong, tender care and the way you guard and guide our lives. Lord, where there are thieves within our lives that we're pursuing or seeking or trying to find meaning or satisfaction or fulfillment or purpose, let us see them for what they are. I pray you'd help us to open our eyes to see them for what they are, puny and insufficient and unable to provide what they think that we, that, what we, what they think, what we think that they can provide. And in return, I pray you'd help us to trust you more fully. Thank you that you're a shepherd and we have everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen.